0: This is HPR episode 1692 entitled Boulevard Brewing Company, Sample 12, and is part of the series 5150 Shades of Beer. It is hosted by 50 and 50 and is about 20 minutes long. The summary is, 50 and 50 explores nature and Kansas City brews while celebrating jukebox heroes. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Howdy folks, this is 5150 for Hacker Public Radio. I know the title on this episode says a beer review for the Boulevard, Boulevard Brewing Company, Sample 12. Uh, package and we're going to do that but I just wanted to digress for a minute and the the reason I'm doing that I'm thinking about doing a project I did a little research and I found out what I thought was some fascinating information in the research and I just wanted to throw that out there just in case I don't ever persevere and actually finish the project but for right now, it's, it's not worth a standalone episode because, as I said, it's an, uh, on my end, it's an unfinished project. But recently, Nightwise showed me a link to using a Raspberry Pi as a streaming music box, much like a Sonos player. And the link is there in the show notes. I looked at some of the enclosures that people had come up with and saw a lot of transistor radios from the 40s and 50s. And a a lot of those little boxes are just true works of art. But they don't seem to provide a lot of selection of controls. Then I remembered seeing a 1950s jukebox wall box controller in a local antique shop. And I'm never sure when addressing our European friends, what part of the American experience they're familiar with. But in the 40s to 70s, just about every American diner that had a jukebox, it also had at every booth, and sometimes at tables, there would be a remote console with a coin slot. And usually you you would have some sort of menuing system, set of card tiles that were rotated by tabs at the bottom or a knob at the top. And each song would have associated with it a code made up of a letter and a number and then you dropped in the required currency, usually on a quor- only a quarter, and you would key in your selection underneath. Uh, you, I said that, uh, uh, usually one letter and one number. And, and of course, that, that song would start playing on the jukebox, and in, so- in the later more advanced units, You'd actually start playing on a set of uh, stereo speakers on the wall box as well. That was, apparently, that was a lot of Americans' first introduction to stereo. But as you can see from the eBay link in the show notes, these wall boxes progressed from just a, say a dozen titles in the 1940s to far more complex systems. And by the 80s, you had some not very attractive units with digital readouts. But most of the earlier ones, before the 80s, they were just these marvels of late Art Deco design, in my opinion. And, of course, my parents were far too frugal to let me drop coins in one of these pioneering marvels marvels of analog networking, back when we would uh, take our vacations in the 70s. But thanks to a couple of monitors... Who have tied their panels into Raspberry Pi, I can give you a general overview of how these units communicated with the central duke box via primitive serial protocols. First off, if you have the expectation of following in uh, the show notes that I've included from Phil Lavin or Steve Devlin, be prepared to pay more for a wall box certified to be ready to connect and work with the same brand's jute box. In other words, you can you can go out there if you if you've got a Seaburg jute box, you can go on eBay and find a wall wall box that's certified to be 100% in working order that you can that you can tie in. And while all wall boxes seem to communicate by serial pulse, unfortunately each company employed a different scheme. Wall boxes of all conditions seems to start around $50 on eBay. Of course, that doesn't necessarily reflect the eventual selling price, but they can easily go into the thousands. As I said, all the wall boxes, in my opinion, are marvels of Art Deco design. And Even if they have no other purpose, they're, they're non-functional, and all they're there for is to occupy your space and become a conversation piece. Interestingly, to me right now on eBay, there's example of a wall box converted to be a waiterless uh, ordering system for a diner. In other words, in place of having stairway to heaven, it would ha- had steak and eggs for ninety five, and there was a glue on plaque on the face of the unit that I I don't identified this system as Toby for totally order by yourself. That just sounds so cool to me. So if I could find nothing, I, well, I could find nothing on the tech on Google's, but I really hope that it was successful because that truly would have been a master hack. Okay, first step, most wall boxes were powered from the jukebox, not, not from AC power. So you just can't plug them into 120 volt alternate alternating current. You're going to likely need something like a 25 or 30 volt adapter. you'll have to research your model and brand of wall box to see what you need. And that's what you get once you get that connected, if everything is working, you should be able to drop in your quarter. Punch in a letter and number combo. If you have one of those letter units, I mean the ones clear back in the 40s, some of them had a dial like one through 13, or you had a you had a scrolling selector, you know one through 20, something like that. And if if nothing else. I, I would say if you find one affordable that looks at look, even if it's non-functional, if, ever, if everything seems to be there, those early 40 ones are, are just outstandingly beautiful units just to have something in your house. Okay, but if you've got one of the more common later units, you either have 10 letters or 20 letters. So usually be two or three rows. You'll, well, you'll hold the bottom row, zero through nine, and then the top row will be the first ten letters of the alphabet, and if there's a middle row, it'll be the second ten letters of the alphabet. And so you'll flip through your tiles and finally uh, find the song that you would want, I mean, if if, if it was still a box. and then you would say punch in like K9, and just like uh, radio buttons on your old car radio, those, those, those two buttons would stay pressed and if you had your quarter and then i think there was probably another switch to you know confirm your selection and you'd hear a motor whir and then those buttons would pop back out now what you wouldn't see in the back because of those two uh, buttons that you'd you'd selected there's this energized rotary arm that goes around in a circle and it will produce a number of pulses Based on the number of contacts that are uh, connected, you know, based based on the keys that you selected, and you know, it's an easiest way to explain it, it's a, it's a lot like a finger dialing a phone, an old rotary phone. But e- each company used used a uh, different protocol for what actually went out back to the jukebox o- on the line. What what kind of pulses that you <coughs> selections would create. In the case of Steve Devlin's row Ammy, there was a set of initial pulses for the number. So in other words, if the number was five, there you know well, it'd probably be six pulses. You know, zero zero through five. I think that there, there was always an extra pulse he said. And then and then there would be a gap. And then for since there were two rows of uh letters, there was a more complex combination of how the pulses would go out for the letters. So I leave that uh, for you to, re- to read on his website. Now, Phil Lavin, the other gentleman I found, uh, and all, all, all these sets of pulses were found through trial and error. He found that his had a similar inputs, you know, 20 letters, 10 numbers, but he found out that the Seabirds communicated by using two base 20 numbers. And of course, they were, you know their pulses to represent the numbers. So you'd have the least significant base twenty number first, and then if you were if if required, if you're if you're high enough up in the selection, there would be a, paw, a pause, and then a second set of pulses for a base twenty number. So both these guys you know have to be really great electrical engineers. I think to discover this. I'm not sure I'm even going to be able to apply their research. This is this is why I wanted to get this out here now because I'm not sure this is something I can duplicate. Now each gentleman used a different method to protect his pie from an overvolt, because like I said these things were throwing out 25, 30 volts, and and the uh, you'll fry a pie with anything coming in on the I/O greater than 3.5. So Devil used a 3.5 volt voltage regulator, which also had the advantage of making his making the pulses seem more square. And then Lavin he uses an optical relay. In other words, on one uh, 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 essentially doesn't really matter what volt comes in on, on the input side. It it flashes a light, and then there's a sensor on the others on the Pi side that picks up on the flashes, converts them to electrical pulses, and c- connects to the I/O ports. And both Lannis, both Lavend and Devil use their wall boxes to control Sonos streaming players. Now, my idea, I want, I want something a little more flexibility. Uh, in other words, they, they both have set up selection like old rock and roll songs and play them through the Sonos. And my idea was maybe to use my selections to play podcasts. So if they're, I'd have such from you know, maybe a streaming podcast. And if, there, if, if it finds out there's no stream for that podcast, it would pull the last unheard, uh, podcast that I, that I downloaded. So, something like that. And then maybe, maybe attach, if, if you've got 200 different selections, maybe, maybe attach, uh, other, other key combinations to various home automation processes. And really, if I get a wall box with 40, 40 IO pins on the Raspberry Pi, I might be inclined to just forget the whole serial communication system and rewire the wall box with a momentary switch under each button and uh, connect each of them to a different IO port on the Pi. So we'll, I'll let you know. But, so I did, I didn't want to wait till I got this all done. So I figured this is one of these things, even if I do do it, it's gonna, it's gonna take me a year to get to it. And I just thought, I I saw all this stuff that the research had been done connecting these wall boxes to a pie. And I, and I said, uh, this is just too cool, uh, to wait. So, uh, you'll see in the show notes, I've got links to Mr. Lavin and Mr. Devlin's, uh, tutorial pages on how they interfaced with the Raspberry Pi. Okay, now to the beer cast. Another episode of Fifty Shades of Beer. And as as I said, this one is going to be over the Boulevard Brewing Company, which is in Kansas City, Missouri, Com, And the particular selection is their sample 12 sampler pack. You know, it's a 12-pack sampler pack. And this is a unique marketing campaign for my favorite Kansas City brewer. The 12-pack contains four varieties of beer, two of which are established Boulevard offerings, and the other two are bottled with non-gloss, supposedly generic labels that appear to have been hand-typed. In other words, we're to believe we've been sold two prototype beers for our approval. The 80-acre Hoppy Wheat Beer, and the air quotes are mine, the graphics consist of an old farm all-tractor towing a pickup trailer carrying a ginantic gi- gigantic hops bud. From this presentation, one might expect an oppressively hoppy beer. Fortunately for the hop timid, this is a rather satisfying ambulation and only registers 20 IBUs. I detected a distinct citrus taste, so I suspect citra or, relate or related hops. But Boulevard is keeping the exact specs closer to the vest than some other brewers. The brewer's description of the beer may be found here Link in the show notes. And it pours uh, corn-soaked yellow with lots of head, but not a lot of lacing. I'd like to say it a biscuity aroma, but it smells more like just sort of damp wheat to me. So, I, I like this beer. Now, the first of the generic label test beers we'll talk about is the Oatmeal Stout. It pours a opaque, dark brown, with a very small, light brown head that disappears quickly. It has sort of a milk chocolate aroma, a thin mouthfeel, and really, when, you, when, you're, when you're swallowing it, you don't really get much taste. It's sort of a chocolatey aftertaste, you know, that, that will continue in your mouth for a long time. But it's not like there's this chocolatey flavor washing over your tongue. In terms of locally brewed opial stouts, I'd really give the nod to the Free State Oatmeal Stout in, uh, brewed in Lawrence, Kansas, but I wouldn't turn down this brew for basically if they decide to continue it. As it's not yet official, they don't have a webpage for it. The uh, second established beer in the pack is the Unfiltered Wheat Beer. On the label, there is a graphic of a farmer gathering wheat bundles to build shocks, surrounded by hops vines. The cloudy with the color of golden wheat straw, lots of persistent head that leaves a little lacing, slightly biscuity aroma, distinctly more citrusy than the 80 Acre, not much malt, and just a little hops bitterness. Despite the name, you can safely drink this beer to the bottom without winding up with a mouthful of particulates. And then finally, our second and last experimental beer, Midcoast IPA. At 104 IBUs, this is where all the hops that you expected from the 80-acre went. Pours wheat straw golden, thick white head that leaves little lacing, with a hoppy aroma. Even at 104 IBU, it has a slight sweet taste and doesn't seem to be one of those, my hops can beat up your hops beers. The label states, the hoppiness, the hoppiest thing we have ever brewed. Pretty nervy for a bunch of Midwesterners. I found it to be a great compliment to the baked ham and spicy glaze that I had for dinner. And I put a link to the recipe in the show notes, even though I improvised quite a bit on the glaze. Well, really, that's all I had. But before you leave, I wanted to play the sounds of dusk that are recorded from my new home site tonight. I can think of no more eloquent w- argument that why living on the lake is better than living in town.